Welcome to the ABM Conversations Podcast. The number one podcast for B2B marketers wanting to explore timeless account-based marketing strategies to drive revenue, customer engagement, retention, and everything that makes sense to both marketers and sales folks. No more fluff. No more vanity metrics. Live from India. Made for the world. And now your hosts, Yog and Manish. Welcome to another brand new episode of the ABM Conversations podcast. This is your host, Manish Nepal. And this is me, Yagneshwaran Ganesh. In today's episode, we are going to discuss how to increase conversions on your website by up to 200% using conversion rate optimization, neuroscience, and evolutionary psychology. And as you might have already guessed it, Yag and I are not the experts in any of those topics. And that's exactly why we have the amazing Tim As joining with us today. Tim is an acknowledged authority on evolutionary psychology, digital marketing, and he's also one of the most sought after international keynote speakers. Tim is also the best-selling author of the books, Unleash Your Primal Brain and Landing Page Optimization, with over 50,000 copies sold worldwide, and his books have been translated into more than six languages. Tim was also the co-founder and CEO of SiteTuners, a strategic digital optimization agency where he currently plays the role of chief strategy advisor. Tim, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, Thank you, gentlemen. I'm great. Very happy to be here. You know, if I look at your recent book, Unleash Your uh, Primal Brain from a Marketing Lens, uh, I would say it's more about, uh, you know, tapping the unconscious or like to move people to a desired action or in other words, using uh, neuroscience to build influence. And interestingly, you know, I found in this book uh, where you said, uh, once you understand the brain evolution, many of our decisions will become easily predictable. To a scary degree, we are walking robots with uh, knee-jerk responses and not the rational geniuses with free will that we like to imagine. That's quite a powerful statement there. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, putting that uh, into the context of a website, this is what we wanted to ask. Like, there are going to be trust issues for website visitors anyway. I mean, uh, you know, anyway, you have a few seconds where you have to establish trust within that time frame. So using all this in, into context, like how do you build trust and how do you inspire action to the visitors? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, trust is very difficult to build online because we're not sitting face-to-face across from another person. Uh, so I talk about the four pillars of building trust online. The first is how you present yourself. We do judge a book by its cover and likewise we uh, look at a website and determine instantly whether it's professional and credible or if it's cheesy and unprofessional. So how your website looks is very important. Uh, A second would be third-party trust. In other words, can you gather up badges, seals, uh, media mentions, uh, pictures of brands that are much more powerful than your own brand? In other words, people saying you're great is a lot better than you saying you're great. Others are much more powerful. Uh, Third, if it's an e-commerce site or if you're asking people to disclose personal or uh, very intimate information, you need transactional trust, safe shopping seals, um, those kinds of things, as well as privacy policies. And finally, 
social proof. This is something that uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini pioneered. And basically, if someone else, had, if lots of people had a good outcome with your product or service, then it makes me feel safer transacting with you. So things like testimonials and reviews are critical. So to me, those constitute the four pillars of building instant online trust. Yeah, I love the fact that you mentioned Robert Cialdini and uh, social proof in the same sentence because he is also one of the person who has, uh, you know, given you a testimonial on your latest book. So that's uh, that's a validation of how good that book is uh, has come out. And I love the way you describe the four pillars of trust because in many ways uh, this directly is a part of uh, conversion rate optimization as I understand it. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. Because I see a lot of companies or brands focusing too much on generating traffic as part of the customer acquisition, but they do not focus enough on conversions. And uh, I have often heard you call conversion as a force multiplier when it comes to business context. So why do you think these organizations that I'm talking about are not committed to conversions as much as they are committed to demand chain? And uh, in your view, what is the much needed shift in their mindset? That's a great question. I would say that um, the reason people don't pay enough, I guess, well, there are two main reasons why people don't pay enough attention to conversion rate optimization. The first is it's not visible. It's not obvious. In other words, we're paying for a lot of our traffic to get people to our website and we're measuring their return on ad spend or return on investment if we're more sophisticated of that ad spend. So there's a saying, what gets measured gets done. So since uh, driving traffic is a very measurable activity, that's where we tend to focus. But it's like the drunk guy looking for his car keys under the street lamp because the light's better there. That's not necessarily where <laughs> the car keys are, but the light's better. And because we can track it, that's where we focus. Uh, the second issue is that conversion rate optimization is actually harder. It's not picking your keywords or doing search engine optimization or signing up another affiliate. Conversion rate optimization is an ongoing activity that... Uh, requires you to uh, play with the business model, with your product mix, with your offering, with your language, with your branding, uh, with your user experience, with your offline communication. Like, um, you know, if you have brick and mortar stores as well, or your email marketing, content marketing, it's a really strategic activity and it's ongoing, but it can be a little bit squishy. Um, it's not real obvious what the payoff is going to be immediately on any particular activity. So it's a much more open-ended thing, and I think people like to do tactical, well-defined things. Let's break down uh, CRO a little bit more. I mean, with all due respect, there are a lot of uh, sneaky agencies out there. I mean, in one of our um, previous episodes, we had uh, Juliana Jackson, the chief evangelist from OmniConvert on our show, and uh, she was talking about how people just change the color of their CDA button or something uh, too, too tactical to that level and try to or expect to see a drastical change in the results at the business level. Obviously, you know, there is so much more to CRO than just getting more clicks. So maybe let's take a landing page as a use case. So when you go about helping out an organization to improve their landing page conversion, what are the typical factors that you look out for? I mean, uh, what are some of the most critical CRO levers there? Well, I would say one is mainly the approach that's wrong. Uh, the, we as marketers kind of have a megaphone or a bullhorn and we're broadcasting our messages out. So the idea is if we just yell loud enough about who we are, 
then people will understand and they'll, of course, want to buy from us. And that's really backwards. I'm deeply steeped in user experience and uh, user-centered design. I studied with Don Norman, kind of the godfather of this uh, at UC San Diego, University of California, San Diego, back in the 1980s. And still to this day, the, the idea that systems or websites or any experience should be designed with the user primarily in mind seems to be kind of a rare finding in my mind. Uh, so to me, you should think of your visitors, what their needs are, who are they, how to attract them, and what problems and misconceptions they might have. They don't have perfect knowledge. They didn't spend a thousand hours designing a website about it. So you have to start with the audience and have an outside-in approach instead of an inside-out approach, which is what most marketers do. Yag and I always uh, believe that, you know, the content on your website in itself should act as a filter. Uh, I mean, this should filter out uh, the, the audience that are not part of your target audience. And I think this principle also ties nicely to the storytelling aspect of brands that inspires trust and commands attention. And it's something that you already touched upon as part of the four pillars of trust that you described earlier. And this is a topic uh, that you also discuss in detail in your book too, where you talk about the power of stories, where you say that uh, stories are the backdoor to uh, the human brain. So what I want to ask you next is, what do you think is uh, it about stories that make it so easy to connect, perceive, and be so memorable and powerful? Mm, that's a great question, and it's pretty deep. Uh, we're the only animal that's capable of sophisticated language, and uh, storytelling is one of the most common ways that we use it. I think it's important, uh, like I do in my book, where I have a whole chapter on storytelling, to step back and understand the evolutionary reasons that stories exist in the first place. So the first is that we, our mind needs to put order on the world. We need to create kind of a linear causality. If this happens, this, this is going to happen next. Or if um, this happens, something commonly happens after it. Not always, but there's a tendency. So the purpose of that, the causality, is to be able to put order on the world and to be able to predict the future to help us survive. So all stories have to be causal. Something happens that makes something else happens that leads to something else and so on. They're a linear causal narrative. And that helps us to model the world better. So that's the first kind of evolutionary reason for stories, to uh, be able to build a predictive model. Uh, the second important function of stories is rehearsal. Um, you know, most of the time, you know, we human beings, for example, start out very helpless as big fat babies and they can't walk or get, find their own food or survive on their own for a long, long time. But what we're doing is we're keenly observing all of the people around us. And that allows us to kind of learn from indirect experience. We're rehearsing things by watching other people. We're rehearsing things by listening to their stories. And rehearsal is very important. We do that in our sleep as well. When we talk about REM sleep and dreaming, that's a form of rehearsal. Most of our dreams, many of them are nightmares. They're scary things. It's running away from the tiger. Um, well, I can dream about how I deal with a tiger attack, and that way I'm better prepared to deal with it in my waking life. I don't have to train on the job the first time a tiger attacks me. So in the same way, stories are kind of secondhand rehearsal or experience. Um, we can go to a scary movie. We can hear somebody tell us a story around a campfire. 
Uh, we can read a book and all of that loads us up with other people's experiences so we don't have to repeat their mistakes. So it's a form of rehearsal. And the finally, and a distinctly human thing, that's the function that stories serve, is strengthening the values of our cultural tribe. Uh, in the West, at least, we think of ourselves mostly as individuals that have their own unique life purpose and worth. Um, in, in Asia, I would say it's more community-based, which is a more natural form of um, you know, kind of human uh, society, I would say. Uh, and the fact is, our history is dotted by survival of one tribe over another. So it's not so much our individual survival that matters, it's whether our tribe survives. And in order to do that, you have to have a really strong tribe that reinforces its values and spreads its ideas quickly. And stories are a way to reinforce those cultural beliefs and values. Right, right. That is such an interesting concept to grasp because, you know, a lot of what you said also reminds me of this book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harari, where he talks, he boils down everything about human civilization to uh, the foundation of stories and how our civilizations have progressed just because of the ability that we have developed uh, as storytellers, right? Yes. Intellectually, that guy's brain just is uh, <laughs> incredible. It's probably the most impactful non-personal development book that I've read in, in the decade. Highly recommended. Definitely, definitely. And uh, here's what blows my mind further, you know, and I, I'm so thankful you didn't touch upon it because it gave me an opportunity to follow up on this. But, uh, you know, you also say that knowing that a story is completely fictional doesn't stop the subconscious human brain from processing it like it is real. Now, how does that work? Because, you know, and, and what uh, what makes certain products, website and social media platforms so addictive than others? Mm, okay, well, you had two questions in there. I'll try to answer both of them. But if I forget, let me Please have me come back. Uh, the, our subconscious, again, runs the show. And um, a lot of times we know this from psychology that what we put into our heads is how we experience the world. There's always a filter based on other people's judgments and cultural conditioning and so on. So if I say that, um, you know, well, one of the reasons, for example, we shake hands with our right hand, historically speaking, was because we used to wipe our butts if you, with our left hand. So you don't offer someone the butt wiping hand to shake. Uh, so you know, over the years, that's also developed into this long cultural thing where left-handed people are somehow less than or they're weird or they're uh, negative. In fact, in, in French, uh, gauche, it means left-handed. Gauche also means making mistakes and... Uh, being uncouth and so on, or the word sinister is another word that has its origin for describing left-handed people. Something being sinister is not good. And all of that evolved from just some basic decision or cultural idea back in the day of which hand to wipe with. So uh, these things are not objective reality. Uh, they're kind of culturally conditioned. And it's really important to make sure that you understand the, uh, yes, the beliefs and values of whatever cultural tribe you're trying to influence. Right, right. Thank you for bringing that angle about uh, being left-handed because I am a left-handed. I've been a Southpaw all my life and I've had struggles with that, uh, you know, using left hand on the dinner table. And um, I mean, there's so many instances I can't even uh, narrate, but uh, 
what you say also reminds me of the evolution of uh, how we um, came to be a society that drives on the left or right hand uh, right side of the road because of uh, you know the the cultural practices that uh, got carried over since the days we we rode horses and uh, the our primary hand which is the right hand uh, had to be on the side of the opponent which is the right hand and that's that's why we uh, you know we had the cultural uh, practice of uh, riding our horses on the left side of the road so i think that's that's this thing gets deeper as you go so that, that, that's that's very interesting i i love that analogy that you gave about uh, the south pod taboos if you look at people we're mammals we're herd animal. There's an advantages to being in the herd. It creates its own disadvantages. You know, we have collective survival and taking care of each other, but then there also creates difficulties in navigating the social structure of herds and dominance and things like that. But basically all other animals, they belong to a herd. Uh, their identity isn't in flux. Um, you're either in this group or you're in this other group. Um, but with people, we have overlapping identities. So I could say, for example, I'm a, someone that was born in Moscow, Russia, actually in the USSR back in the day. Uh, so my tr one of my tribes is being Russian. Another one is being an immigrant to the US. That's another cultural tribe. Another is driving a Mercedes Benz. I'm a, I'm a member of the Mercedes driving tribe. I happen to shave my head. That's a, I'm a member of the bald-headed guy tribe. So, you know, a lot, we, we don't just have one identity. We have overlapping cultural identities. And depending on the context, different ones are, I guess, activated. So to go back to the marketing angle, it's really critical to understand your cultural tribe. So the, the, the proper progression for effective marketing is to say, Hey, let's focus on an audience. Let's un number one. Number two, let's understand what their values are. Number two, and number three, let's ef develop effective uh, products, services, and messaging to align with those values. So this tribe will be loyal to us, and that will resonate with them, and they'll buy from us. Usually, marketers have that completely backwards. You know, product says, "Here's here's what we're going to sell. Sell this crap to as many people as possible." And the messages become generic, and it's kind of like all eight billion people on the planet you know, have a use for this product. It gives you whiter teeth and fresh breath, and you'll be rich and better looking. You know, it's just uh, these universal kind of things, and that's exactly backwards. You need to understand the your, who your tribe is. That you're, the values of those people, and only then can you make very targeted messages that resonate with their values. Sure, sure. That makes so much sense, Tim. And uh, before I forget, I want to follow up on the second part of this uh, question that I asked you about. In your opinion, what are the things that make certain products, brands, website, or social media platforms so addictive than others? Well, addictive is a, uh, I have a, my friend Nir Yal wrote a book called Hooked, and it was about creating <laughs> addictive products and services. Then he kind of wrote the antidote book to that called Indistractable. Both of them are great, by the way. Uh, but, you know, addictive, um, when you start talking about addiction, you start talking about brain chemicals. And brain chemicals that make us feel good are there, again, from a survival perspective, an evolutionary perspective, are there to help us survive. So anything that um, helps you do that is felt feels good. And if you do that too much or a 
use high levels of those chemicals by injecting them or ingesting them into your body, you know, there's a potential for addiction. With social media, the thing that's most often activated is a um, substance called dopamine in our brain. And dopamine, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, helps us meter out energy. Is it worth going after a particular goal or should I stop wasting my time and energy on it? Uh, so it meters out these small little squirts of motivation, if you will. And then if we don't get the expected goal, dopamine also rewires our brain to quickly learn from a negative experience. So it's kind of an uh, oh crap circuit in our brain that says, I didn't get what I expected, I better learn from this. And that way we get a better model of the world. So what a lot of social media companies have figured out is how to trigger that dopamine, how to get you to check those messages, to have those three blinking dots when someone is typing their reply so you have a a kind of anticipation of, of this unexpected random reward, which by the way is the most powerful type of motivation, intermittent reinforcement. And, and you're just waiting to get that message back. So they've figured out all of these kind of evolutionary psychology, uh, neurochemical angles on uh, keeping you glued to your social media feeds. Uh, and I don't think it's for the betterment of society personally. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, in fact, you know, uh, uh, I, what of a lot of things that you said about being addictive or the dopamine factor and all of this also reminds me of, uh, you know, one of one of our previous guests by name, Yukai Chao, who spoke about this, uh, you know, on the Octalysis framework, where he talks about how gamification works and how it gets people to come on to things again yes. and again. Yeah. And, and then that's, uh, and it's very well studied again, um, pretty much. If you want to see effective design of motivational systems, visit a casino. I mean, this is not new news. Every tiny aspect of a casino has been well-defined uh, from the lighting in the room, the amount of distraction, the noises that the machines make, the frequency of the rewards, um, and even things like on a roulette wheel, did you know that, or not? A, rather on a, a slot machine, you know, say you have three items that are supposed to line up in a straight row in order to win. Well, guess what? Right. They designed it so that near misses look like they're very common. So you didn't win, but it looks like you had two out of three, for example. The fact is they overrepresent near misses to take advantage of the fact that that motivates us more. Uh, that not getting something and thinking it's a near miss, it actually creates a three or four times stronger dopamine spike. It makes you want to play again and pull that lever on the slot machine one more time. So all of that stuff's been carefully studied. And uh, like I said, go to Las Vegas or Macau and uh, that's that's your lesson in, in persuasion and motivation. <laughs> that's amazing. Right. So, you know, uh, speaking of uh, levers, I think um, going back to the, the website and the CRO aspect where we originally started, um, uh, we also wanted to touch upon one more interesting lever that is the offer. Right. Uh, and um, since majority of our listeners are B2B marketers, especially from the SaaS world, uh, let's talk about free offers. So do you believe that there is a power to free offers? And what would your advice be on structuring pricing for maximum impact? Mm, OK, well, there's a lot to unpack there. So I'm going to talk about free versus paid and then I'll talk about offer pages. Actually, let me start with the offer pages. There's a most of us, especially in B2B uh, marketing, have a plans page. That's pretty typical, I would say. Right. And the way that it's structured is there's kind of a bronze, silver and gold version of the product in that order. And then there's a long table with lots of features 
And most of those of that matrix of features are the same for, for all of the packages. And then there's just a few differences as you go further down the table. Would you agree that that's pretty typical? <laughs> Absolutely. And usually the middle one seems to be the best of both worlds. <laughs> that's right. So, so a few things about the offer page that I think will be immediately applicable to your listeners. One is the order is completely backwards. You need to do it in gold, silver, bronze order. And that's critical because we don't have a sense of absolute value, certainly not with regard to abstract software plans or B2B products or services. Um, you know, we just compare things relative to what's in front of us and in our environment. In other words, if I was a millionaire and you dropped a suitcase full of $1 bills, I probably wouldn't even bother picking it up. But if I'm a um, poor person and you did the same thing, I'd grab it because it represents a significant difference to the my current context. And it's meaningful for me to go after that reward. So, you know, we very much everything we do is, I call it the theory of relativity. It's relative to what we can access in front of us. And so it's important to anchor things properly. So in the lobby of the experience, before you ask me to make a decision, what are the things you're using to deploy influence? And one of them can be a really, really high anchor. So for example, um, Apple sold of course, the iWatch, but uh, for a while they had the gold iWatch and it cost $10,000. What kind of, pardon me, idiot would buy uh, a $10,000 digital watch? It's like a Timex, which you can get for $5, right? Well, they didn't expect to sell too many of those. In fact, you can consider it a flop. They only sold tens of thousands of them around the world to a bunch of people, obviously had too much more money than common sense. But that wasn't the point. The point was to make the price of the regular iWatch, whatever it was, $800 or $999 probably, seem cheap in comparison. And they were wildly successful selling those. In fact, in the first quarter, I think it was 2017 or 18 when they first released it, Apple sold more watches by dollar volume than the whole Swiss watchmaking industry combined. And that $10,000 gold iWatch was the anchor of the experience. And compared to it, a $1,000 iWatch seems relatively cheap. <laughs> and again, the word is relatively. So it's really critical to put your most expensive stuff in the front. Another reason to do that is uh, that people are much more motivated by loss aversion. We hate to lose a resource or feel pain because that lessens our chances of survival. So if you start with like, here's the gold or platinum version of our product. And if you step down to the silver version, you're going to lose all of this stuff. And you focus not on the full table of features, but on the things you're going to lose if you step down. And then people say, oh my God, that constrains my resources and it lessens my chances of success and survival. I don't want to lose anything. So you should anchor high and focus on the pain of the things you're going to take away. Right. On the, and on the free aspect, uh, you know, uh, there's something that I, uh, I heard you speak somewhere is that uh, when, when you commit or when you ask somebody to try something for free, uh, you also make them take up uh, or, you know, commit to it so that they're obligated to uh, pay later. That's not how it works. Well, for free is, is a, is a very important um Free versus any amount of money is a very important distinction. It's infinitely better. <laughs> um, it's not, let's say, one, if you charge a dollar versus free, it's not a dollar better. 
it's actually infinitely better. Here are some of the psychological and evolutionary reasons for it. One thing is our mind likes certainty. Okay, so free is absolutely no cost, right? Free versus a dollar versus five dollars versus ten dollars or a thousand dollars and other price points. It, it's there's we evaluate um, binary things, simple things with the subconscious. It doesn't require conscious intervention. We just automatically make that decision. Okay, so free is a clear binary decision. Free versus any amount of money is a clear decision. Okay, the second thing that uh, free does is it invokes reciprocity. Because if you give me something, uh, because we're highly social beings, we actually evolve to reciprocate things. Uh, to uh, So evolutionarily speaking, if we do something for someone, we expect to get something of equal value or more in return. Because if we didn't get that reliably, that trait of being cooperative wouldn't have evolved in us. And it is definitely strongly evolved in us. So when you give someone a gift, like if you went to someone's home for dinner, assuming COVID is over, um, you'd bring a gift. You wouldn't just be one of those really bad, rude guests that didn't bring anything and expected them to feed you, right? Right. When we give someone a gift, we're ex- we expect something back. And, they, and, they, and the, here's the thing. Gifts put an obligation on the receiver, even when they don't want to give you anything back. This is really critical. You might do it grudgingly, but you'll reciprocate. There's really strong taboos against not reciprocating. You have to be a sociopath not to reciprocate a gift. Um, so it's that's another important function of free. Someone gave you a gift. And finally, um, there's a kind of a perception of which sphere you're operating in. So think of it this way. We have our close tribe, which uh, Robin Dunbar has estimated at about 100 to 200 people. And we have intimate knowledge of those people. We expect to have ongoing relationships with them. And we can we know their character. And we know their trust. Integrity and your word is the most important thing in that close circle. So knowing someone's character, if you will, um, and knowing that they're trustworthy. And in the same way, if we're dealing with strangers, we don't trust them. And that's why in larger societies of billions of people, we need lawyers and contracts and money. So no one gets cheated or robbed or... Um, you know, taken advantage of because the transaction might only happen once and you ever, never interact with that person again. So there's no ability for them to repay favors or to um, you know, reciprocate like I was talking about in the gift giving world. So really we operate in the transactional sphere or in the personal sphere. And it's very hard once you get put in the transactional sphere to go back to the personal sphere. So in the land of gift giving, we feel open to people and helpful. And literally, when you mention money, people become more selfish and less likely to help because you're taking away a resource from them, which is their money. So you really have to know which sphere you're operating on. And it's a lot easier to psychologically move people along in the free sphere because of uh, the relationship instead of in the transactional sphere where it's it's just uh, dealing with strangers. Right, absolutely. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, you spoke about the fear model because uh, it also reminds me of uh, a neuromarketing model by uh, David Rock called the SCARF model, where he talks about status, certainty, uh, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And each of them operates in a certain way. And in fact, it also, um, you know, very similarly works to what you just spoke about. Yeah, I, I think that's um, you can't really reduce um, our functioning to 
several aspects like that. Um, the way I look at it, it's more of a, from an evolutionary perspective, there's older stuff that's more fundamental that we share with ancient life forms. And then there's more recent adaptations. So if you really want to understand how human beings function, you have to retrace the whole arc of evolution, which is what I tried to do in my new book. So dopamine, we were talking about that earlier. Well, we share that with insects, with fruit flies going back 400 million years. <laughs> so that's that you can't say that's a thing about Facebook or Facebook messenger blinking dots. It's, it's, it's a basic mechanism that works for a lot of life. Um, other stuff we picked up, like uh, dominance um, and hierarchies from our mammal cousins, other things just at the great ape level. And then there's uniquely human things like language, for example, and and our need to transmit culture that are distinctly human. And so to understand which one is operating depends on the circumstances and how subconsciously the decision is being made. The deeper stuff happens pretty much automatically. And it's only when it's something new and non-threatening that our conscious mind gets involved to say, hey, what does this mean? I've never seen it before. Um, so to kind of reduce it down to those several factors you talked about, I think is, is not necessarily the best way to look at it. Tim, uh, we have reached a big milestone in our podcast recording tonight, and it's time to sprint into the grand finale, which <laughs> in, in our podcast lingo means uh, the rapid fire question round. Are you ready for the lightning round rapid fire questions? Let's do it. All righty then. And uh, my question number one is going to be a little direct. And it is, why should people read your book, Unleash Your Primal Brain? Oh, Unleash Your Primal Brain. Well, the, it's, a, it's a very readable overview of evolutionary psychology. So it's applicable to business. I mean, we've talked about some of the marketing applications, but it's also great for relationships and understanding community and culture. And it's fantastic for personal development. So if you want to do some myth busting and figure out how your mind really works and apply that to all aspects, professional and personal in your life, uh, it's a very great, very readable primer on a, a pretty ambitious um, and central part of our existence, which is how your brain works. Right. And it has some pretty solid recommendations from people like Robert Cialdini and Seth Godin. So I think we should definitely pick a copy of it as soon as possible. So uh, moving on to question number two. And question number two is about the filtering mechanism that we discussed earlier. Which one do you think works better on a website? Is it a sign, a sign up form with a lot of fields to filter prospects or shorter forms that lets the sales team qualify prospects? Why? Uh, okay. Well, that's not a short answer, but I'll do my best. Uh, I think the, your gating strategy for content um, is really critical. In other words, how much information you ask for in exchange for doing certain things. And you can think of it as a U-shaped curve or an upside down U-shaped curve, rather. At the beginning, you should ask for no additional information because you don't have the right to do it. You don't have a strong relationship with someone. So get out of their way and give them what they want. Give them those gifts without asking for anything in return. Because by asking me to fill out a form, you're wasting my time and you're asking for my conscious attention. Uh, at the end of the process, the same thing. If they're ready to transact, get out of their way, take their money, let them sign up or pay you. And in the middle of the sales process or marketing process, that's when you can ask for information um, by giving something of value in return. So in general, um, depending on the stage you're in, that's how you should determine how many fields to have in your form. But in my landing page optimization book, I actually have what I call the form field test. 
and it's a two-parter. Is this information absolutely necessary to complete the current transaction? So if you can't answer yes to both parts of that, absolutely necessary to complete the current transaction, then that field should probably not be on the form. Don't ask any uh, nice to know information. Just ask for essential information that has clear value to the person filling out the form and they understand its purpose. Right, right. I'm smiling because I remember forms that ask for my sexual orientation or genders and which I don't think is relevant to to the vendors asking the question. So good, good reminder on that front. Um, <laughs> yeah, it depends, I guess, on what you're selling. If it's a dating site, that might be an appropriate question. Absolutely, absolutely. Question number three. In a typical B2B scenario, the buyers and the users of a product tend to be different. If it were up to you to develop the marketing plan, would you target the buyers or target the end users? And why would you do that? Um, I think that's a false choice. There's a fantastic book. I think it's from the 70s or 80s. Uh, still the classic in uh, B2B high ticket sales. It's called strategic selling. And one of the things it talks about is identifying the needs of all the decision makers. Unlike a consumer decision like buying candy at the store, it's not an impulse buy. It, uh, it's expensive. It's got a lot of implications for my personal career prospects and for the company's success. So it's very high stakes. And so you're selling to several people, the financial buyer, the gatekeeper, like legal and compliance people, the end user of the system, the people that are going to maintain it. And you need to have parts of your website specifically for each of those roles. So each of those people gets what they need. So I think it's a false choice. I think you need to address the needs of all of those people because it's a high stakes decision. That's a great answer. I didn't see that coming. So that's, that's really great. Uh, question number four. If you were operating on a very tight marketing budget, let's say you're operating on a string marketing budget, where would you invest most of your money on? Would you rather spend it on branding or performance marketing and why? Or is it also a false uh, comparison? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. And I actually have a keynote that I, that I just recently did again um, on the ending the war between branding and direct response. Uh, so I, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but at the root of it, I think uh, it's um, really, a, I would say the right way to look at it is where is your center of gravity? Is it out where the user is and your audience, or is it inside of your company? And how you spend your money depends on uh, how effective it's going to be, depends on how close you are to the user. So if your branding, quote unquote, is your colors, your logo, your fonts, and a 180-page style guide, like once we did a, 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 an experiment, a split test for the homepage of Texas Instruments, which was a huge company, they literally gave us a 180-page style guide of what we were allowed to do and not do on the page. If that's what you call branding, that's very much inside the company. It's this arbitrary formal document that sits inside the company. It has nothing to do with your visitors or users or clients. And so to me, where you should be spending more money is out there as close to the clients as possible. I'd be surveying them. I'd be doing uh, talking to my customer service people or people that handle returns or subscription uh, cancellations. Um, I'd be going out into the field to understand how they use the system better. So I'd get as close as I could to the user side as opposed to the inside the company view. And, and then you're going to make both your branding and your direct response much more effective. Right, right. 
that makes so much sense now a lot of times i have heard you say that giving people a taste will increase the commitment to us a brand or uh, whatever they're buying from what's an example possibly a real life example of that oh well there's there's lots of examples again the evolutionary principle that's important to understand here is that we were nomads we evolved to be to walk around in small tribes on the plains of east africa and uh, on the serengeti and we were uh, we carried everything we needed for our survival so carrying something was you know, only for essentials carrying the baby carrying water carrying weapons carrying clothing that kept us warm or cool all of those things were essential. So we tend to overvalue things we own. And that's a very important insight. Once we settle down, we filled up our houses and garages and storage units, and we keep buying crap. And there's a lot of people that are hoarders or quote unquote collectors of various things. And that's a misfiring of that ownership instinct. Because we can own it, it makes us feel safer. And so it's really important to understand that the sense of ownership makes us overvalue stuff. And so in order to take advantage of that, you can have, for example, um, longer guarantees. Just try it on, like the mattress companies in the U.S., the online ones say, try it in your home for 90 days. Well, you're literally trying it out, right? And your old mattress is propped up against the wall of your bedroom. And after a week or two, you'll throw it away and you, you won't ever return it. So having longer guarantees and longer trial periods, I think a lot of B2B companies are too stingy. Here's your 14-day trial. Well, no, make it a 90-day trial. Make me use it more make me feel ownership over it. And then there's no way I'm going to unplug it uh, after that because I'm committed to it and, and I feel that sense of ownership. Uh, so anything you can do to increase my interaction with it, which might be visioning, it could be like um, customizing it. If you were to use our product or service here, let's go through this wizard or calculator and, and figure out exactly what configuration you need. Well, if I Again, I'm envisioning using your product. Even that configuration wizard is a form of commitment on my part because I'm um, in kind of uh, trying it on for size and thinking how would it serve me in particular? How would I use it? And so on. So those are a couple of ideas to try. But it's important to understand that we overvalue things we own. So anytime you can give me a sense of control or participation or customization or actually experiencing the product, uh, is is the, the most powerful approach you can take. Right. That makes so much sense. Now, uh, now that I think of it, the generous return policies make so much sense because we rarely make use of those return policies because they are done for a reason, right? They, they know that we are not going to uh, use a product and return it back because once the ownership is there, we are committed to it. That makes so much sense. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So if you can do a lifetime guarantee on something, always do a lifetime. That's a nice hack, I would say. That's a business hack. <laughs> All right. Uh, my last question for tonight is, um, and I ask you this question from uh, the point of view of e-commerce uh, uh, stores, online e-commerce stores in the context. Do you believe that structuring your categories and products selection impacts your sales or is it more about offering enough choices and keeping your products affordable? Uh, wow, there's so much to unpack there. Um, I, I have a whole a full day workshop on e-commerce best practices. So let me pause for a second. Um, product selection is critical. Product selection and organization is critical to the success of a large e-commerce catalog. 
And the mistake that many companies make is to say, we're the Amazon of our category and we have infinite amount of selection. We sell every possible version of this product from every manufacturer on the planet. Well, that doesn't actually help me because you're overwhelming me with choice. As the consumer, what you're doing is you're kind of going and you're throwing up all over me and you're saying, here, you clean up the mess. You figure out which of these thousands or hundreds or dozens of products is exactly the right one for you. And so that's a mistake that's commonly made. I think you need to color your product line and remove redundancies. If something is very similar to something else, figure out the one that makes more profit for you and just sell that one. Uh, but remove non-obvious choices. Don't make me think. Uh, there's a great book by Steve Krug my, uh, about that, about, uh, and it's absolutely on point for designing good websites. Don't make me think. My conscious attention is really expensive. So having me wrestle with product selection is a bad idea. So I'm a big fan, for example, of Wizards. Hey, let us help you find the right product. Ask me a series of simple two to four way questions. Get me down to a reasonable product set. Order it, again, in gold, silver, bronze versions um, like we talked about. That's much better than just throwing me into the deep end with all of your undifferentiated right. products. Tim, this was an amazing conversation. I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy as uh, much. But before we let you go, I want to ask you the usual questions that we ask for from all our uh, guests. If you had to give a one-liner parting message to the listeners of our podcast, what would that be? Hmm. Focus on the values of your target audience. Awesome. That's that's very deep. I love it. And uh, if, if anyone wants to get more information about anything we've talked about, um, the best way to do that is if you're interested in speaking or my solo advisory consulting, expert website reviews, that sort of thing, uh, go to timash.com. And if you're interested in some of the uh, evolutionary psychology underpinnings of how your brain works, go to the book uh, website, which is primalbrain.com. You know what? That was going to be my uh, you know, second follow-up question to you about where can people connect with you in the online world, but you have already answered that. So that's awesome, Tim. We really appreciate you taking out the time to join us today, despite your busy schedule. For the listeners tuned into the podcast right now, we will be back with yet another interesting topic or guest next week. Until then, this is bye from me, Manish. And this is bye from me, Yag. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ABM Conversations Podcast. Make sure you subscribe and share your comments with us. We're constantly looking for your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions to make the show more relevant to you. 